Hi, I'm James Bray. And I'm Anne-Marie Ingtuff Larson. And this is the World Economic Forum's podcast, Shaping the Fourth Industrial Revolution. To paraphrase Monty Python, what has regulation ever done for us? Well, actually, quite a lot. If you've ever flown on a plane, you'll recognise it as a feeling. Regulation was the intangible sense of security you felt in booking your ticket, boarding the plane and taking off. It was the peace of mind you had as you hurtled into the sky at hundreds of miles an hour, confident, more or less, that you were safe. You could call regulation your warm and fuzzy, the sense that the companies you're entrusting your life to can be trusted because aviation is an industry where very little risk is tolerated. Regulation ensures the drugs and foods you consume won't kill you and that our rivers and seas can be swum in. Regulation, in theory, stops people from selling you harmful financial products or, to be more frank, ripping you off. It forces companies to be honest about the harmful effects of what they sell. We think it makes sense to start with this hymn to the beauties of regulation because, in many circles, its brand is not so hot. Many entrepreneurs... Businesses and free market ideologues are ever ready to put the boot into regulation as the sworn enemy of wealth creation. This is why governments like to trumpet crackdowns on red tape. Here's Karen Young, Director of the Centre for Technology, Ethics, Law and Society at King's College London. So the whole notion that regulatory intervention is evil is total bunkum. That it has a really important role to play in protecting the general public against potential harm. The challenge, of course, is to know when that's required, how to do it, and to do it in a way that balances all of the other concerns that we have. Like, we do want to promote positively beneficial technological innovation. So there is a concern that too much regulation will stifle innovation, but the notion that regulation is bad full stop, which is a common mantra in the tech industry, is total bunkum, as far as I'm concerned. So we start with that premise that regulation, or let's say elegant regulation at least, is a beautiful thing. Had we had a more robust regulatory regime back in the first industrial revolution, hundreds of thousands of people would have been spared miserable deaths and mutilations from unsafe chemicals, machines, working practices and waste disposal methods. But in the fourth industrial revolution, things are going to get harder for regulators. In the best journalistic tradition, I'm going to oversimplify the issues, but they can basically be boiled down to two things, scale and speed. The scale of the risks regulators have to mitigate and the speed at which they emerge are going to change. Let's talk about speed. In case you somehow missed the theme of this series so far, technology is advancing crazy fast. Barriers to entry for anyone who wants to start a tech-based business are lower than ever, so new business ideas are prototyped every day. Good ones go from David to Goliath in a blink of a regulator's eye. All of this amounts to a blizzard for regulators. Too many new models to monitor and a new pressure to regulate fast. Leave it too long and before you know it, you're dealing with a monster. At the same time, the challenges that are emerging today are just different. For instance, how about this for a big idea? Nita Farahani of Duke University is a leading scholar on the implications of biosciences and other emerging technologies. One of the areas that I've really been focusing on is incriminating thoughts was really looking at the problem that a lot of governance was based on a physical world rather than more of a virtual world. And most, if you think of U.S., 
constitutional protections, for example. Most of our constitutional protections against, for example, the privilege that we have against self-incrimination, the rights against an unreasonable search and seizure by the government, these were all based on an idea of physical intrusion into our space or physical intrusion upon our bodies, the forcible gathering of testimony where a person has to speak out against themselves. Um, and in a world where we can start to access what's happening inside of a person's brain, in the world in which um, information is gathered by reading blood flow patterns and electrical activity in the brain rather than forcing a person to speak, most of those constitutional protections as traditionally interpreted, and this is true really across the world and how most of our laws were written, they were written to design and designed to protect people against physical intrusions into their space. You won't have to physically intrude into a person's space anymore to gather a tremendous amount of information about them. And we see that not just in terms of the body, but the fact that we can gather so much information from our digital footprints, from everything we do with interacting with the online world. And so what I think is required now is to come up with a much more robust idea of cognitive liberty, an idea that the mental space that we occupy, the uh, place where our thoughts and our ideas and potentially illicit thoughts and political dissidents occurs in our minds and our brains, um, that that's worthy of protection and that that protection is essential to happen now, that it's sort of the last place that we have any freedom. That, I think, is lacking in our regulations. It's lacking in our discussions about human rights. It's lacking in our protections across the world. Feels like a big idea that needs some pretty innovative thinking. And it's not that society hasn't done that before, but the fourth industrial revolution is going to see a lot more of this kind of problem. Old methods for sizing up risks aren't always going to cut it. Dave Guston is co-director of the Consortium for Science, Policy and Outcomes at Arizona State University. The regulatory issues are going to be challenging, uh, particularly since that the way that we've done regulation in the age of, you know, industrial chemistry and basically the other kinds of uh, industrial uh, activities in the 20th century has been a risk-based regulation where, you know, we think that we can gather enough information through experience, through toxicology, through a set of other scientific inquiries and really make some quantitative evaluation of what the what the risks might be and therefore some science-based judgment. And with emerging technologies like nano, like synthetic biology, uh, particularly things in biology like we're seeing with CRISPR-Cas9, those science-based assessments are more and more difficult because there are whole troubles with standardization, with the kinds of uh, interactions between the innovation that you're dealing with and the effects that you're looking in the world. And instead of having something that is easily quantifiable to give you a, a solid risk, science-based risk assessment upon which to base a decision, in the fourth industrial revolution, we're probably going to have to do things that are more, on the one hand, anticipatory, that is, looking toward various futures and understanding in a less quantitative way how things might play out. For example, we are self-consciously designing the opportunity to move a mutation through an entire species over the entire range of that species. 
Now we know that it's really hard to control where where animals and plants go. We already have that problem. If we're imagining, for example, as some folks are imagining, trying to basically uh, take out certain mos mosquito populations to prevent the transmission of dengue fever or something like that, that in order to achieve that goal, you have to uh, design something that is cross-national, and we don't have those cross-national decision-making bodies to engage in this. So what is the regulator to do? Actually, there are quite a few ideas around. Innovations in science and business tend to spur innovations in regulation. That was true in the first Industrial Revolution. Goodbye, child labor. And it's true this time around as well. Regulators around the world are busy building themselves a new toolkit, and one of the men at the eye of this particular storm is Wendell Wallach, scholar at Yale University's Interdisciplinary Centre for Bioethics. He has long been a champion of new regulatory approaches for new technologies, but he gets a lot more attention these days. And as it happens, I have been working for the past 15 years or so on ethical issues around new technologies, Five, ten years ago, you could count on your hands the people who cared about this, and suddenly it's very hot. So that um, that's, means that I've been in a great deal of demand. Though there are specific problems in that that I'm focused on. I'm particularly concerned with putting in place new agile structures for the governance of emerging technologies. Agile is a word that comes up a lot in these circles and carries a range of meanings. Basically, the thrust is that regulation needs to be more responsive, move faster, be less formal and more experimental in its approach, with regulators learning more as they go. One of the key frameworks here is something called adaptive governance. And the basic idea there was that existing governments are maladaptive to engage in the legal ethical oversight for emerging technologies. And we need to rely much more heavily on other mechanisms, particularly what's sometimes referred to as soft law or soft governance, which is industry standards, laboratory practices and procedures, um, insurance policies, and also ethics and engineering solutions. The role of government here would be a little bit different. Government could help fund research, of course, that needed to take place. Government could stand behind the standards by saying that we won't procure um, goods unless they fulfill these standards. And government could say we will serve as the function of prosecuting those who violate standards in a way that are harmful to humans or animals or the environment or institutions. So it's a whole model of how you return the, the oversight, the legal ethical oversight of technological development so that government in the old sense is the last resort, but something you turn to to help reinforce other practices and procedures. But it's different in the sense that you don't have a lot of hard law that's trying to dictate what the regulation should be, putting bureaucracies in place and then getting stuck with what you decided 20 years ago based on the technologies that existed 20 years ago. So it's, it has the capacity to be much more agile or adaptive. Translating these kind of principles into concrete real-world plans is hard. 
One of the more clearly thought-through attempts comes from Jillian Hatfield. She's a scholar of law and author of the book Rules for Flat World. So the proposal is what I call competitive-approved private regulators or super regulation, and it's super in the sense of regulating the regulators. We already have a ton of private actors already creating regulatory regimes. We have standard-setting bodies. We have a lot of regulation happening through our global supply chain contracts. We have regulation happening through terms of service. What we don't have is a good design of a regulatory layer for the, to regulate the regulator and to make sure that that what those private regulators are producing is aligned with what the public and citizens want. So, the concept of competitive approved private regulators is the idea of creation of competitive markets for private regulation. So, you could become a private regulator. I could become a private regulator. We would be licensed by governments,、uh, which would be looking to establish what are the outcomes that our regulatory systems have to achieve.、Uh, so it might be a rate of accidents for self-driving cars or、uh, pollution levels. And so, as a private regulator, you and I would be competing to sell to the companies that are required to choose a regulator. So we're kind of we're trying to be dual-facing. We'd be We'd be facing our market where we're trying to sell an effective,、uh, adaptive regulatory regime, and we'd be also facing our government regulator, who is saying, "Well, you got to prove to us on a regular basis that the system you're implementing is achieving the outcomes that have been set by our through our politically accountable processes." So let's think about self-driving cars. So what I like to think about is we've got a lot of really, really smart engineers. Working in a lot of different companies and a lot and research labs, university research labs, on the development of of that technology. Some of them is they're, they're deeply aware of what the regulatory challenges are. I like to think those are the kinds of people I want to provide for them an opportunity to say I want to go to a startup. I'm not going to do a startup for another self-driving vehicle, but I've got the startup. For a regulatory regime,、uh, it's not it's not about saying let's go to markets for any ideological reasons.、Uh, it's just that that's we ha- we're facing tremendous challenges, and you need the decentralized processes of markets to pull in all the resources, the great ideas, the great thinking, and the money that you need to build them. For some critics, the direction of travel here is going to sound worryingly like deregulation rather than regulation, less direct government oversight, and more market involvement. Recent history does contain some discouraging case studies for those who think we should trust the private sector to regulate in the public interest. I think it's a really nice idea, self-certification regimes by the private sector. But unfortunately, our experience of these in practice has been not very promising. So, for example, credit rating agencies completely failed. To act as guarantors of financial robustness, because there was just so much in it for them. And as one of them said, we'd rate a cow if you asked us to. That's what it was like in the frenzy before the global financial crisis. So certification failed. The VW scandal, in which at least in the UK, in fact in the whole of Europe, the way in which meeting emission standards are met. In the vehicle industry, is through certification agencies, and that was an utter failure. And it's quite striking that fi- there were only 500 million vehicles in the U.S. 
that had the um, the cheat device, and the US has successfully elicited a pretty major compensation payout for all those affected. In the EU, not a penny has been paid. So to me, where there is strong and stringent regulation in the US, it has worked. And the EU, it has utterly failed. So it's a nice idea, self-certification regimes, but the problem is that those bodies are ultimately conflicted. Okay, They have an interest in getting as much business as possible. So they want to go out and certify anything, like a cow. And then they have an interest in telling you that it's absolutely fine. And so that, I think, is the fundamental problem with third-party certification. It's a nice idea, but there is an inherent conflict of interest in the approach to design. One idea is to infuse research labs themselves with values that guide them towards responsible innovation, literally embedding people in labs who can help researchers anticipate possible problems with their work. Dave Guston explains. Part of the idea here also is that the... um, is that the laboratory is seen through this lens of anticipatory governance as a place where the governance of new science and technology happen, where decisions about science and technology are being made in addition to the regulatory arena, in addition to legislatures, uh, regulatory agencies, and that more political, more obviously political and public environment. And so once we recognize the laboratory as a site of these governing decisions, then we can see, for example, that interacting with uh, the scientists and engineers who are making decisions in the laboratory and broadening their understanding of what could go into those decisions and how their decisions influence the folks who come downstream from their work in, say, the regulatory environment is an important kind of shift that is necessary for the fourth industrial revolution. Other aspects of the anticipatory governance framework include, in addition to anticipation or foresight, the uh, integration of social scientific and humanistic and ethical inquiry into the science and engineering laboratory. And there we have some really interesting kinds of results where the social scientist or humanist that we bring into the science or engineering laboratory is not there to say this is right or wrong, this is ethical or not ethical, this is uh, environmentally sound or not environmentally sound. They're really there just to create a more Socratic kind of dialogue with the scientist or engineer, but what ends up happening is that the scientist or engineer becomes more reflective about their own process over this period of time that the interaction happens, and they begin to change things in the laboratory. And so what, you know, the kinds of results we've had there, and this is mostly the work of my colleague Eric Fisher, that in the very first pilot version of this, that Eric did when he was uh, a doctoral student. He interacted with someone who was doing work on a nano device and who was stuck in their work, and Eric engaged in this Socratic dialogue with them. And they ended up finding a technical solution to a problem that they were having, and the results of that would mean that if this thing were scaled up, they would be using a more environmentally benign 
material than they had originally imagined that they were going to use. Again, though, not everyone is comfortable with this kind of arrangement, which hands a great deal of discretion to labs and researchers themselves, not all of whom want to play ball. Access to uh, industrial labs is very challenging because of issues of intellectual property. Um, the way private firms tend to be organized where marketing is separate from research and development is separate from corporate social responsibility. And it's, you know, oftentimes you see some really wonderful activities that uh, firms are doing around corporate social responsibility, but that doesn't feed into the R&D agenda. And the marketing research may not be attuned to that either. Part of the challenge is that I face as an academic researcher trying to develop these techniques is first trying to grapple with the fact that the, the principal motive on the industrial side is a profit motive. And there have been these, you know, really terrible examples in the past several years that you've seen at, you know, really large scales, the, um, the Volkswagen uh, scandal, for example, about people just making <laughs> the wrong decisions, highly unethical decisions about the way that they're going to approach the intersection of industrial innovation and regulation. Of course, there are risks and there are risks. Across the global economy and the wide range of new technologies, there will be room for lots of regulatory approaches. And some will be appropriate where others won't, depending on the level of potential risk. We wouldn't expect the government to regulate cheesemakers the same way they regulate manufacturers of nuclear submarines. The trouble for proponents of lighter-touch approaches is that the whole notion of IR is premised on the revolutionary nature of the technology involved. Here's Rob Sparrow from Monash University in Melbourne. So I like to imagine someone uh, making all the same claims that some of the advocates of the social consequences of rapid technological progress uh, make but making it in the context of one of those urban guerrillas from the 1970s. Uh, so you imagine some guy appears on television, you know, he's wearing a ski mask, he's got a balaclava, and then he says, look, I'm going to radically change what it means to be human, I'm going to put a quarter of the workforce out of work, I'm going to radically redistribute political power. Some people will become vastly wealthy where other people will be locked out of uh, political uh, participation. Um, if you saw that television broadcast, no one would say, bravo, you know, fantastic, lead us on, on to this, uh, this bright new future. People would be horrified uh, and they would demand to say, they would, if you're serious about these technologies being revolutionary, if you're serious about technological having ma technologies having massive social and economic impacts, then these should be within the context of a democratic politics. Uh, the people who are going to live with these consequences should have uh, a say. You know, if you think of technology as um, not really changing power relations or not having that much of an impact, you can afford to leave it to um, entrepreneurs and the free market. But the moment you start saying, look, what's the most powerful world historical force today? You know, it's not, you know, socialism, it's not capitalism, it's technology. Then what you've done is argue that people have a right to shape how technologies are developed uh, and used. 
Uh, in practice, I think this means uh, consciously trying to shape technological trajectories. Uh, it means uh, setting research agendas. It means sometimes trying to shut down particular uh, research agendas, as myself and a number of people have argued we should try to do around autonomous weapon systems. It's to direct foreseeable technologies to particular uses that might benefit the majority and not the few. Uh, placing technology inside of democratic politics seems to me to follow uh, very uh, straightforwardly uh, from someone saying this is a revolution or this will change everything. Regulation doesn't take place in a vacuum. The fourth industrial revolution isn't, we hope, going to do away with public opinion. Whatever structures we put in place, no healthy society can afford to completely outsource its regulatory decision-making to a technocracy. Or, perhaps the way to put it is, no technocracy can afford to ignore public opinion as it considers these technologies. Would we have arrived at today's web of anti-nuclear rules without massive public pressure? The old-fashioned tools of expression, protest, etc. will shape the contours in which the decision-makers operate. Or, to borrow a metaphor... They determine the size of the elephant in the closet. What's fascinating about artificial intelligence right now is that industry recognizes that it has a GMO-like problem. So the way I've often phrased it is industry recognizes that there is a potential GMO-like elephant about to pounce out of the AI closet. And they are deeply concerned that large segments of the population or regions such as the EU and Canada, which turned against genetically modified foods, could turn against artificial intelligence. And for that reason, industry is open to be responsible in ways that perhaps it's never been responsible in the development of any earlier technology. But it's only going to be responsible if we find agile, effective means to bring all the stakeholders to work together rather than to just compete against each other or see what they can get away with. In a sense, we're all regulators, but we have to make it our business. A key question here is timing, or what Wendell likes to call inflection points, the moments in history at which a new technology's trajectory can still be altered. The inflection point for nuclear weapons may have been already whether Einstein wrote the letter to, uh, to Roosevelt basically saying that this is the technology that we need to be concerned about. But obviously there was an inflection point when uh, Roosevelt and Leslie Grove decided that uh, we should make the investment and that Oppenheimer jumped on board and they went ahead and built the nuclear weapons. But it was also an inflection point when Truman used those nuclear weapons. I mean, the simple fact was the nuclear weapons were originally built to counteract a fear that Germany was creating nuclear weapons. Um, and then it turned out that Germany wasn't creating nuclear weapons. We still used it. I mean, I understand the history, and it's not worth getting into all that. But 
there were opportunities to have made different decisions. One way for regulators and governments to square the circle is to try and get ahead of what's coming down the tracks, keep control over regulatory practices, but try to preempt the problems with new technologies and ease the path for all those restless innovators, scientists, and entrepreneurs who are straining at the bit to get to market. There's no shortage of technologies this applies to. Drones, autonomous vehicles... Internet of Things are just a few where the likely scale of adoption is clear and the risks need to be understood ahead of time. An ounce of prevention, as we all know, being worth a pound of cure. Sheila Jasanov is Professor of Science and Technology Studies at Harvard and wrote a book about the ethics of invention. It may be better to think about preventive options rather than downstream solutions that eradicate the difficulty once it has arrived. In medicine, we see this all the time, that there's a tug of war, really a struggle for conceptual dominance between a public health approach that says, look at things on a population-wide basis, and it's often much better to think of how you can manage things for the population and for substructures within the population, like more vulnerable people, instead of approaching it at the level of the individual cure or the solution, where you say, well, if somebody manifests a disease, then how do you intervene after the disease has started? So these are sort of large conceptual points. And it's I'm not taking a position that there's one size fits all, or even in medicine that the public health model is always better. It's often both and. But I do know that in decision-making systems, I wouldn't call it hardwiring. I would say that institutional commitments we've historically made tend to press uh, styles of decision-making in one di- in one direction or another, and then people become very close-minded. They think in those terms and not in more open-ended terms about you know what the alternatives would have been. So one of the sort of general points that we've learned from environmentalism is that it's almost always better fairly early on in a process to think about alternative pathways and then channel design after there's been a good discussion of the pathways forward, not to say, I discovered this and therefore I'm going to develop it. That is something that in other writing I've called the Mount Everest syndrome because it's like, why did you climb it? Because it was there. And one often sees technological design being driven by the sheer cuteness or the ingenuity of an idea. And then it finds its users, not because someone has bothered to go out and find what the needs, wants, and interests of a community might be. And then to say, here are the tools in my toolkit, and here is what I can do for you, given that I did the diagnostics in a democratic way, in an inclusive way, uh, in a way that's respectful for where people are actually sitting. Enter the Sandbox, a device to allow new entrants in developing markets like these to test out products in a closed environment, in a dialogue with regulators. A number of financial regulators are experimenting with this approach to dealing with disruptive innovation in fintech, And there are other similar experiments to road test autonomous vehicles in Catalonia and Singapore, among others. Korea is building an entire fake town to this end. Professor Kyung Soo Yi is at Seoul National University's Department of Mechanical Engineering. Basically, uh, 
our main objective is to uh, evaluate safety performance. For example, as a, one of the manufactured autonomous vehicles satisfied the uh, Korea safety standards, but uh, definitely uh, we cannot directly access the the uh, inside of the uh, the autonomous vehicle systems. So our approach is to design uh, some evaluating systems so that we can we can repeat. Uh, the designed uh, test scenarios uh, without any any completely unknown uh, autonomous driving systems. So in that uh, context, uh, we need to design very simplified and very effective uh, test scenarios. We can uh, generate and repeat uh, the same scenarios in, in almost the same conditions. For example, we, we can design five uh, test scenarios, including the clearance control in, in lane keeping situation or uh, lane changes situation or intersection merge situations uh, or, or and, and cornering uh, situations uh, in, in multi-lane uh, driving situations. And so we can we can evaluate uh, the safety performance of uh, uh, unknown autonomous driving system manufactured by some some any any uh, automakers we create the the designed the test scenarios and then we can measure uh, all the driving performance of the autonomous driving uh, vehicles you know, by the by the use of our uh, systems our system consists of the maximum uh, the four or five uh, uh, auto automated automated vehicles uh, we developed and we can completely uh, measure the the behavior of the uh, manufactured autonomous autonomous uh, automated driving vehicles so without any any specific uh, informations or without access of the uh, inside of the uh, automated driving systems of our vehicles we can uh, measure all the behavior of the autonomous drivings for the designed test scenarios uh, that is the uh, quite uh, original different approach we, we, we designed uh, for the uh, future uh, evaluation of automated driving vehicles. Sandboxes, on the other hand, I think have real potential. So for new innovation where there's just an enormous amount of uncertainty about what the risks actually are, it provides a kind of safe, protected space where we can experiment. And that just sounds like a jolly good idea. Now, whether or not in practice they achieve that purpose, I think is, it's probably too early to tell. But I think it's a really promising idea. I don't. I haven't seen enough evidence of outcomes yet to get a sense of whether I think it generates good outcomes. But certainly, I'm, I'm supportive of the idea. Ultimately, the biggest tool in the regulator's box might turn out to be technology itself with the right design. The idea of using technology as a regulatory instrument is, in fact, an extremely old one. And in fact, the, probably the oldest one we can think of is the door lock. So if the rule that you want to enforce is do not enter without permission, there's a really easy architectural solution to that is put a lock on your door. So in fact, we've been using technology to achieve policy goals or particular people's social goals through the design of our architecture, not just of spaces, but also places, processes, organisms, increasingly even people, in order to achieve a particular policy goal. So we've actually been doing this for a long time, and clearly we've been using so-called surveillance technologies for monitoring what's going on in a particular domain for a long time. But as our technologies get increasingly powerful, our capacity to harness them in ways that help us to achieve particular 
policy outcomes becomes even greater. And so we see this now in the turn towards blockchain as an instrument for governing collective behaviour or imposing limits on what can and cannot be done. For example, that we... If we think about how are we going to regulate artificial intelligence, so that's something that's an enormous challenge to our existing approaches to regulation. We think about if our existing approaches to regulation are, okay, we'll get legislatures to draft rules, to monitor for violations. I don't think that's going to be possible with a lot of what we do with AI. So I like to say I think we're going to need AI to regulate AI. So we need to be thinking about how are we going to invent the kind of artificial intelligence layer that's capable of regulating and tracking what's happening with the AI and implementing what politically accountable institutions are looking for from that AI. So if we think about that, that's, that's a tremendous innovation challenge to develop not only the AI that's you know, doing all of the things that we want you know, for self-driving vehicles or automated processes in factories, um, but if we're thinking about now we need um, an AI that is engaged in the regulatory task of making sure that what's happening with it, the, the, the ground level AI is aligned with what humans want from it. Um, that's an innovation challenge that governments can't solve alone. Perhaps regulating is just yet another job that the FOIR will make redundant. But whether it's AI or people making the rules, public opinion will shape the limits of the debate. So worth bearing in mind next time you're wondering whether to ask an awkward question about a new technology. You've been listening to Shaping the Fourth Industrial Revolution with me, James Bray. And me, Anne-Marie Ingtoff Larsen. Join us for the next episode, where we will look at one of the biggest news stories of the Fourth Industrial Revolution so far, technological unemployment. What is the future of work as we outsource more and more to machines? And if you want to know more about this topic, check out the World Economic Forum's new book, Shaping the Fourth Industrial Revolution. The book is designed to give you clarity to how all these exciting new technologies impact all aspects of society and empower you to engage personally in this unfolding revolution. You can buy the book on Amazon. Amazon.